Today's New Testament reading and focus passage is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The message to the church at Sardis is unique from the others. We don't have words about false teaching or going astray in that regard. It's something that I think hits a little more close to home for a lot of us Christians, that being complacency. And we'll get there momentarily. These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Each letter begins with an identification of Christ, one that is different from the other, and some identifications that can be found elsewhere in the book of Revelation. And today's identification is often one that stops us if we haven't thought about the numbers in Revelation, because you might just about now be saying to yourself, I didn't know God had seven spirits. That's new to me. Well, we have to remember that Revelation is often uh, utilizes numbers that have significance behind them and are not always meant to be taken literally. And so when we read in this passage that these are the words of him who has seven spirits of God and seven stars, the number seven in Revelation and in apocalyptic literature of this time Uh, means wholeness or completeness or fullness. And so when we learn of seven spirits of God, we learn that Jesus has the fullness of God's spirit within him. Or Jesus holds the fullness of God. It's a testimony to the fact that Jesus is fully God. And so because Jesus has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the stars which represent the message going to the churches, the people at Sardis could know that the message which came to them was not just divine, but whole and complete and held tightly within the grasp of Jesus Christ. The church is first and foremost in this letter reminded that Christ remains in control, even though in the present time, The church may seem out of control, or the world may seem out of control. This was a common theme in these seven churches to begin the letters. They needed to be assured that Jesus was, is, and will be in control. And that's a message we must also hear today as well. 
Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished. I almost wish every scripture said, wake up, church, because that might remind you to stay awake, not just during the sermon, but also as we live out our Christian faith. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. This language of waking up is prominent in this letter to Sardis. Throughout this letter, wake up comes up again. And there's often a historical and contextual meaning behind some of these phrases that we explore and seek to find what they mean. So though we may not exactly be sure about what spurred on this word of wake up, it may be a possible reference to the city and history of Sardis itself. Bill, if you could go ahead and throw the image of Sardis up on the screen. You will see here in the background, you'll you'll see Sardis. This is an ancient building in the ancient city of Sardis in Asia Minor. But I want you to take note of what's in the background. You see those steep cliffs and mountains. Uh, This city was almost impenetrable. Just because of its location, any invading army would have had an incredibly, incredibly challenging time to find its way into this peaceful, sleepy city called Sardis. In many ways, they could almost fall asleep to the armies of the world around them because those armies would never be able to cross that mountain that you see in the background, right? Well, it just so happens that there were a couple of points in history where this city may have fallen asleep a little too deeply. And the soldiers and the guards of the city may have gone asleep and slept a little too deeply. In 214 BC, Antiochus III captured Sardis because of the negligence of the soldiers. The soldiers thought to themselves, what do we need to be awake for? Why do we need to be on alert? No one can get into our city. Two centuries later, Cyrus and the Persians conquered the city for almost the exact same reason. And so this city had fallen asleep on multiple occasions because they were so comforted and so assured that nothing could go wrong. They were so comforted and so assured that no army could penetrate that steep terrain that you see in the background. And so there's a history lesson here, perhaps one that John is calling attention to and the people in the city would have known about because those would have been some dark days in their history. That complacency is just as dangerous as false teaching in the church. This was especially true of a place like Sardis. As far as we can tell, they weren't facing the same challenges that the other churches were facing. You remember in previous weeks, Christ would say, I know you are tolerating these teachings and you need to turn from them. Or I know that woman Jezebel in your congregation. Almost every letter so far has talked about a false teaching finding its way into the church. And there's no word of that for Sardis. As far as we can tell, there's nothing going on here like that, but, but there is the sin of complacency, of living out the faith so casually and almost falling asleep and following Christ that it became a pretty serious issue for the church. And so Jesus 
warns the church of complacency or of falling asleep, just as their guards had had done at various points of their history. Perhaps they didn't struggle with emperor worship. Perhaps they didn't have an internal conflict. Perhaps they didn't have to deal with those darn Nicolaitans or the teachings of Balaam or Jezebel. That may not have been a problem for them. Good for them, by the way. But there is that problem of complacency. At Sardis, we have a new enemy to deal with. The enemy of forgetting why we're here. The enemy of forgetting that we have a job to do, church. The enemy of, let's take it easy in our faith. We don't have anything to worry about. Sardis liked having it easy. And we have an innate human desire to want to make life as easy and convenient as possible, don't we? Our home life, our work life, our school life, we want all the tools and technology possible to make life easy so we don't have to put forth a ton of effort. And I grant you, I think that sneaks into our church life and faith life as well. Some ways we can make life easier can be good. We can communicate easier or access information easier, perform our household duties easier because of various kinds of technology, but that doesn't always produce the best results, and that's also true of our faith, trying to make life easier and trying to make the Christian life as smooth and as conflict-free as possible. That may sound desirable, but it may lead to falling asleep. A recent FAA study found that pilots are losing critical flying skills because they are under-challenged by these state-of-the-art planes that virtually fly themselves. Yes, your pilot went to pilot school and knows how to fly a plane, but oftentimes these commercial jets fly themselves for most of the trip. Ironically, the push for safety through computer flying is leading to more accidents as pilots abdicate too much responsibility to automated systems. And you may have seen some of that play out in the news in recent years. I fear that the church and those of us who call ourselves members of the church are are tempted to push that autopilot button, aren't we? We're tempted to put our faith on autopilot and become complacent just to hope that we arrive at our destination without having to put in too much work. I fear that if we push the autopilot, we will lose sight of what it means to be a struggling disciple. Maybe our autopilot is praying and hoping that someone else does the work of the church besides me. Or maybe our autopilot is assuring ourselves and assuring others that we'll pray and pray for the needs in our community without taking part in definitive action in addressing them. So we'll pray and pray, but I certainly don't want to have to do something about it. Maybe the autopilot comes in the form of simply being confident in our ability to do good and to be a moral person without experiencing the growing pains of being transformed into a disciple of Jesus, which often calls us to inconvenient lifestyle changes. So we may give ourselves the occasional pat on the back 
because we believe we're living out the Christian life in the way that we're supposed to be doing, and we've arrived, and we don't have much more to tweak or to grow. And so we hit the autopilot button. Maybe we simply believe that giving enough money to a church or a denomination relieves us of any obligation to use our hands in mission. Because we say, well, someone else will do it. After that, that's what missionaries are for, right? Well, the Christian faith did not come with an autopilot option. That's what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis. Yes, they may not face the challenges of the other churches. They may even be more protected from outside influences because of that steep terrain and mountains. And yet they are to continue to work and to grow as Christians, to wake up, as John says. It's been for us 2,000 years since the time of Christ, and the church has grown exponentially from a persecuted minority in Asia Minor, such as we read in the scriptures, to the largest faith group across the globe. The church is better resourced than maybe it ever has been before, and so we're tempted to fall asleep. We say there are billions of others who are taking part in this Christian journey. I'd say I can fall asleep a little bit, wouldn't you say? Where have you fallen asleep in your Christian walk? Where do you need to wake up? Does it involve the way you worship? The way you share the love of Christ in community? The way you grow as a disciple? The way you go forth in this world as a missionary in your own land? Are you asleep in any of these areas? Jesus says, strengthen what remains. He's not telling the church at Sardis that they've got no hope left. He says, strengthen what remains and wake up. It's still there, Jesus says. Just wake up and go to work, is what Jesus is saying, to become a healthy and strong and purposeful church in your city. So where do you have to wake up today? Church as a whole, where do we need to wake up? We must accept the fact that the work of the church is never easy and complacency is always waiting at our doorstep if we choose to rest. The church must always be on the lookout for intentional opportunities to practice our faith and to pray and pray and to work and work to not fall into complacency. We can't just hope our success as a church into existence. We can't just wait for the needs of the world to fall into our lap. We must go out and struggle and find those needs. Jesus tells us to go out into the world and make disciples, not simply wait for them to come to us, right? Jesus says to love our enemies as ourselves. There's nothing easy about the gospel, is there? And so if at any point the Christian faith seems easy to you, you need a self-check. And trust me, I need that self-check often. I want my Christian life to be easy. But these words to the church at Sardis remind me that this Christian life, if it's not a struggle, if it's not holy work, 
then I'm not going about it correctly. However, there is good news to be had. If we can go out and do the work, we are promised that we will wear white clothes. White clothes meaning victory in the book of Revelation and cleanliness. Uh, that's a metaphor we often use in the story of, uh, in the Bible, but also in following Jesus, that we wish to be washed white as snow or we wish to be clean. And so in this passage, we are told that if we conquer If we see our faith through until the end, we will be clothed in white robes, which is good because sometimes we need to get those stains washed out, don't we? This past Christmas, we were on our way from uh, one grandparent's house to another. I won't try to recount it because I don't remember where it was or where we were, but I remember I had on a white Henley shirt. And you know what happens when you have white shirts on, right? Yeah. Well, on the way, the coffee started dripping out of my thermos and onto my shirt, so I'm sitting there driving. Oh, this is going to look good in the family photograph, isn't it? <clears throat> so the coffee drip, drip, drip. Well, we got there, and, and then we started eating, and we had some barbecue, so then naturally what happened? The barbecue sauce dripped on my shirt, drip, drip, drip. So I've got coffee stains, and I've got red barbecue sauce on my shirt as well. And Macy had been eating some red M&Ms, and she had them all over her mouth, and she came and gave me a hug, which I always welcome and accept. But then there was red all over the bottom of my shirt because the red had come off her mouth and was now on my shirt. So by the time it was time for a family photograph, I had coffee and barbecue stains and M&M stains on my shirt. My brother told me I looked like a, like a chef at a restaurant, like I had just been working and got grease all over my shirt. Fortunately, Valerie is a pro at getting stains out of a shirt whether she uses a stain remover or Murphy oil in some way to get that stain. I can still wear that shirt today. I did not think that day that I would be wearing that shirt ever again. But somehow that shirt was washed clean and made white again. I think that's an important reminder for us to be given today in this passage that no matter how soiled or stained our clothes may become, Jesus is there to take that stain away. Jesus is there to take that stain away and to help us wash our clothes clean and have those white clothes of victory. And so today, if you have never had your clothes made clean or made white, if you feel led to become a follower of Jesus, I invite you to do so as we sing our final hymn together. We believe that when we follow Jesus, we are, our sins are washed clean. And so if you would like to experience what it is to have white robes, so to say, as John expresses in this passage, I invite you to see me at the front. At the same time, we mess up, even as followers of Jesus. So we occasionally get those coffee or barbecue sauce stains on our soul. And so every day we need to ask for forgiveness and repentance and to rededicate ourselves And so today just may simply be a day for you to listen to God's Spirit, to rededicate yourself, to work through the challenges of life, and to trust that Jesus will be there to wash your clothes clean, should you need it. So if you are already a Christian and you wish to come forward today and to express a desire to rededicate yourself or to enter into some kind of Christian ministry, or perhaps to join this church and to follow Jesus in this church family, I invite you to see me at the front in a moment as we prepare to sing our final hymn. Would you please pray with me?